in 2 Kings 8, <clears throat> we read about the man of God, Elisha, and we read about him weeping. And when Elisha weeps, you know that something sad is happening. When Elisha weeps, you know that he is indeed moved by his sorrow. <clears throat> I've told you all before that the comparison between Elijah and Elisha, that Elijah being this peace, or Elijah being this man of fire and a harsh prophet and Elisha being this peaceful, gentler version of Elijah is very silly because we remember that Elijah, as Elisha rather, as he started his ministry after Elijah had gone up into heaven in the whirlwind and the fiery chariots, started his ministry with calling a curse down on the youth and bears came out and mauled and killed dozens of them. That's not the start of a kinder, gentler Elijah, right? And so <clears throat> here we read of this same man weeping, weeping at what he sees in the future, weeping at what God has revealed to him. Now I want to explain why Elisha was weeping, but I also want to explain why I am trying to preach on two stories at once. You notice we read two stories at once, right? First story was about the woman. <clears throat> whose son had been raised to life by Elisha and how she goes out and comes back and receives her property again. And the second story is about this new king of Aram coming to power, Hazael, replacing Ben-Hadad by murder. <clears throat> well, these stories are not put together accidentally in the Bible. And so <clears throat> I want us to see the connection between them as best we can. And in order to see that, I want to point out a couple of things to you. In this first story that we read, <clears throat> you notice that Gehazi is mentioned. Now kids, do you remember the last time that we heard about Gehazi in this book. Anybody remember when we last heard about Gehazi? He was the servant, uh, he's called here the servant of the man of God, so he's the servant of Elisha. When was the last time we heard about Gehazi? It's been a while, I know. You remember? That's right, he went to Naaman. That's right, he went to Naaman and claimed 
that he was sent by Elisha to, to take the treasure that Naaman had offered for being healed of his leprosy. And then, that's the key, the last thing we heard about Gehazi is that he got leprosy. The last thing we heard about Gehazi is that he got leprosy. And now here he is and he's talking to the king. And what the commentators point out here is that this is out of order. Because there's no way that a man who had leprosy from head to foot is going to be sitting there chatting with the king. Lepers are out. And so this story is brought back in, out of order, and put here on purpose, is what, there, is, is what the commentators are saying. Okay, now... Most of them don't really spend much time on the purpose. They just say, well, clearly this is out of order, and then they move on. But that gets me thinking, why? Why exactly did the person who wrote this decide that they wanted this story to go here? Because <clears throat> it doesn't seem to have anything to do with Hazael, right? doesn't seem to have anything to do with Ben-Hadad or Aram at all. And it doesn't have anything to do with the, the uh, previous chapter, the story that we were reading either, uh, which was when the promise was fulfilled that this commander of Israel, the, the, ser the, king of, the, the servant of the king, would see but not be able to partake of the cheap grain that he said God could never accomplish. And so he was trampled at the gates. You remember that? So this story is inserted here on purpose. And I want us to try to think about why you would put this story in between the, the trampling of this man at the gates, at the city gates, and then the story of Hazael murdering Ben-Hadad so that he can become king. You've got this sweet little story that takes six, six verses <clears throat> right between there. And it's not just because they thought that it would be a nice contrast and offset. There's a reason that this story is brought in. And I think that it has to do with the purpose of the book of First and Second Kings. And since we've taken a break from the book of Kings, I want to go back and ask ourselves the question, what is the purpose of this book as a whole? And that'll help us to understand all these stories that we're reading. And sometimes even the order that they're placed in. So what is the purpose of the book of Kings? First and second Kings, remember, is just the two scrolls of one book. It covers the history from the golden age of David and Solomon, right? Starts right up at the top. And it ends, does anybody know where it ends? Where does, where does second Kings end? Do you know? 
It ends in failure. That's a, that's a good word for it. It ends in failure. If you go all the way to the end, we are in, we're only on chapter 8, and of course, 2 Kings has 25 chapters. <clears throat> and when you, when you skip all the way to the end, the last heading in my, in my Bible says, Gedaliah made governor. And verse 22 says, Now as for the people who were left behind in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, and you realize, oh, it starts with Solomon, where silver's too common to bother making cups and dishes out of it. And it ends with the people of God in exile. So the book of Kings is a pretty depressing book overall. Starts at the high point, ends at the low point. So who wrote the book of Kings? We don't know. It doesn't say. No reference to it anywhere. But one thing that is clear is that it couldn't have been completed until after the exile. So we're covering a lot of time in this book. And it seems, as we read through it, to be an explanation of how and why things degraded so far. How and why things degraded so far. If you go back, if you remember our reading in Deuteronomy, you remember that before the people went into the land, Moses told them what would happen if they turned away from the Lord. And what would happen is what we read of in the book of Kings. So what we're reading is a long, extended description of Moses' warning being fulfilled. That if they go into the land and they forget the Lord their God and they begin to worship idols, he will take the land away from them. And they will suffer tremendously under his hand in various ways. And he describes some of those ways. And then we see, the, we see those explicit things laid out in the book of Kings. And so Kings is written as an explanation and as a warning to the people who are in exile and to us that we must remember God's commands and we must worship him and him alone. Now, that sets the big picture for this book. Now there's some other context that we need to remember because it's been a while since we were in 1 Kings. But in 1 Kings, Hazael is mentioned. Hazael, who we read about at the end of this passage today, who becomes king in verse 15. Hazael was one of the three men 
who Elijah was to anoint for God's judgment on Israel. Do you remember that? We've got to go back and we've got to read a little bit of it. <clears throat> 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 13. This is right after Elijah has gone running away from uh, Jezebel. And he has gone for 40 days on the strength of those two meals. You remember that? And then he's up on the mountain and there's fire and an earthquake and a whirlwind and then the gentle breeze. Now starting in 1 Kings 19 verse 13 we read, When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So this, this back in 1 Kings 19, is kind of a central piece of the story of the book of 1 and 2 Kings. What is going on? Elijah tells us what is going on. The people of Israel have forsaken the Lord. That's key context, right? Now he continues, they've forsaken the Lord, forsaken his covenant, torn down his altars, killed his prophets, and he's the only one left and they're trying to kill him too. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. Hazael becomes king over Aram in our passage today. You shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you will anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. That's our context. And now Hazael is becoming king. But there's one more verse to read. Do any of you kids remember what God says after that? There's a, there's a, there's a very important part of what God says that we haven't read yet. When Elisha says, I alone am left, and they're seeking to kill me. Do you remember what God says to him? Nobody? Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
Here is this terrible judgment of the Lord being promised that they are going to die. That Elijah is right. And yet he's not quite right. Because he alone is not the only one left. But the Lord will save 7,000 for himself. If you go back and you start reading from there, you only read about Elisha being anointed by Elijah. You don't read about Hazael or Jehu being anointed. As far as I can tell, this isn't made explicit in the text, but it seems to me that Elijah gives Elisha his mantle and his work. And so Elisha becomes the one who is going to make Jehu and Hazael kings over Israel and Aram. In fact, in our next chapter, we'll read about Jehu becoming king over Israel. And so, this judgment is finally coming about. Promised back in 1 Kings 19... And now, here in 2 Kings 8, Hazael is becoming king. And the purpose of the Lord for Hazael becoming king is revealed back earlier. It's a judgment on the people of the Lord. It's a judgment on Israel. Not just a judgment, but a judgment so that they will die by his sword. And now, here in our passage, we read of the specifics that it will take, and it becomes a lot more detailed, doesn't it? What is the judgment going to look like? This is what Elisha weeps about. He says, I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, And their young men you will kill with the sword, and their little ones you will dash in pieces, and their women with child you will rip up. It's a horrific judgment. It's terrible. Terrible enough that even Elisha is weeping, seeing it. Elisha, who is part of the judgment of the Lord himself. Those whom Jehu and Hazael don't kill, Elisha will kill, is what God says. And yet even Elisha is weeping at the thought of what Hazael is going to do to Israel. Is there any more severe judgment than we can think of than what's been described here. A crying prophet is always something to take note of. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Here we have 
Elisha weeping. And you remember that Jesus wept. Jesus wept at the death of his friend, Lazarus. But Jesus also mourned over the people of the Lord, the city of Jerusalem, and how they would not be gathered together under his wings. They would not come to him. And so he mourned. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And then what does he say about them? You who kill the prophets. This is Israel. At this time, they who have rejected the covenant of the Lord and killed the prophets. Elisha, who watched most of the prophets be killed. Elisha, who served under Elijah, who was suffering at their hands, who did everything he could for them. You'd think that Elisha is ready to just be done with the people of Israel, right? But no, he's crying, weeping. Weeping such that Hazael, who's about to go kill his master, so you know he's not exactly a, you know, a pansy, right? He gets like a little bit, uh, I don't know, uh, awkward. Why are you crying? Why are you crying? He's just staring at him crying. It weird me out too. Wouldn't it weird you out? Had someone stare at you? That's enough, right? And then and then just start crying. It's amazing. You can see Elisha picturing having it revealed to him, maybe then, or maybe thinking back on what the Lord has shown him already, thinking, this man, he's the one. He's going to do this. This is a severe judgment. But now take a step back. What about this story about the Shunammite woman? What does that have to do with this? This sweet story of this woman is not just placed here accidentally. It shows us the mercy of the Lord. What happens in this little story? Elisha, who has saved her son... Saves her and her household, her husband and son, again by just going and warning them hey, there's going to be a seven year famine. Better uh, take care, go someplace else. 
And as they say, a word to the wise is sufficient. Have you guys ever heard that saying? You kids know what that means? A single word, all you got to say to a wise man is, hey, famine's coming. And they'll do something. Oh, I think I will listen to the prophet of the Lord. Right? There's a lot of people who would not believe. There's a lot of people who would not listen. There's a lot of people who would not act. And yet, she believes the Lord and she acts. And so they are saved from suffering through the famine. And then when they return at the end of the seven years, you have the king brought into the story. Jehoram would have been king in Israel at this time, we presume. And so Jehoram is speaking to Gehazi at that time. And Gehazi is relating the story of when the woman's son was brought back to life by Elisha. Because the king is asked, well, tell me about this Elisha guy. Is he really all that? How amazing is he? And Gehazi's going, yeah, he's pretty amazing. Yeah, he raised this kid from the dead. And then the woman walks in. Is that an accident? Nope. It's no accident, is it? God has this planned. How many years have passed? How much has been going on? And it just so happens that she walks in right as Gehazi's finished telling the story about her and her son. What is that? It's an opportunity for the king of Israel to repent. It's an opportunity for the king of Israel to Believe the word of the Lord through Elisha, the prophet. It's an opportunity, once again, for the people of the Lord to change, to repent, to return to Him, to return to His covenant. This little story in part, demonstrates that Jehoram has no repentance in him. That the people of Israel will not listen. Now, yes, he gives the land back to the woman. He gives even what profit the land would have had back to her. What a remarkable woman. Yes, you can have your house and land back. What's missing? What's missing is any praise of the name of the Lord. Any humbling of himself. But that's not all that we see from this passage. We also, besides seeing the lack of repentance, we see God has not forgotten the other part of his promise. Yes, Elisha and Hazael and Jehu will be God's judgment of death on the people of Israel. And yet, here is Elisha 
saving the life, the lives of this woman in her household once again. The man who is to be a judgment of death is being used by God to protect and save life. God keeps his promise that he will save, he will leave 7,000 as a remnant. He doesn't forget his promises. One of the things to note about these two stories being placed side by side next to each other is that this is a common theme throughout Scripture. That God, at the time where His judgment is being poured out and people are being destroyed, we see His mercy, we see His hand of salvation on those who repent. On those who turn to Him. couple of examples. Noah being saved, brought safely through the flood at the time when the whole rest of the world is judged and given, devoted to destruction, to death, right? Or Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what an emphasis you have there with Abraham pleading, well, what if what if there's 50? What if there's 45? What if there's, 30? What if there's 15 men that are found righteous in the city? And the Lord's saying, yeah, okay, sure. I won't destroy it. And even then, though there are not enough found to save the cities, what does he do? He saves his remnant out of the cities. And he calls Lot and his family out and saves them. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of the mercy of the Lord being shown even in the midst of his judgment. God often shows his judgment with his mercy, saving a remnant at the same time. Now, another thing that we see in these two passages coming together is that God is king over all the earth. I pointed out before it wasn't an accident that she walked in right then. We see God's sovereign hand bringing her to that place at that time. Some kind of coincidence, right? But God is acting in this story to make things happen at exactly the right times and we're also seeing that he is king not just over the lives of his people, but he is king over all the earth. He sets up and tears down rulers in every nation to accomplish his plan. Who's going to be king of Aram? Aram is the main enemy of the people of God at this time. They're the ones that are fighting with Israel. Who's in charge of who's going to be king in Aram? God is. God is the one who's in charge. God decides when Ben-Hadad is done being king. 
God decides who's going to be king next. God decides when it's going to happen. So why do we have, as our president, Joe Biden? What do you think, kids? Why is Joe Biden our president? Go ahead, I saw an answer. No, you don't want to say it out loud? It's too scary. Why, why do we have Joe Biden as our president? Why did we have Donald Trump as our president a little bit ago? Yeah, go ahead. That's right, because God decided he was going to be our president. That's it. The Lord put him in that position, and so that's why we have, as our president, right now, Joe Biden. I don't know who the next president is going to be. Do you? Anybody? Anybody know who's going to be president next? You think you know, Arthur? What a smart kid. Somebody learn to understand him so we can find out. You know who knows? Not Arthur. <laughs> God knows. He's the one who decides. God is the one who decides who's going to be the next chancellor of Germany. God's the one who decides who's going to be the next. I got to be careful because I can't remember what every country has, you know. <laughs> chancellor, king, uh, president, and, and so of all the countries and of all the tribes. And do you know why he chooses who is going to be where and when? It's always to accomplish his will. It's always to accomplish his will. Now this ought to give us great hope even when we see that what his will is is to bring judgment on his people for their refusal to live according to his law and according to his covenant. It brings us great hope because we know he fulfills his promises and his promise to us is for a hope and a future. His promise is that he will not leave himself without a witness on the earth. His promise is that he will remain, retain a remnant for himself. And so then, you can look at everything that happens and who comes next and who gets power and you can realize, okay, God's doing it. I don't, I don't necessarily see exactly what he's doing, but I know, I know what he's doing. He's bringing about his will. And he is going to be glorified through this. And so, I trust him. Even when it's Hazael becoming king over Aram, and the sorrow that we must weep at the judgment of the Lord on his people. But Elisha doesn't lose faith as he weeps. Elisha, Elisha weeps and he knows God is accomplishing his plan.
God is king over all the kings. We might think that the reason that we have Joe Biden as our president is because we decided that's who we were going to have. And in some sense, that's true. God has given us what we desired as a nation. And yet, God is the one who's accomplishing his plan. And what is it to have a man devoted to the ripping out of babies from their mother's bellies in his own country other than a judgment of the Lord? A wicked, wicked man. A murderous man killing his own people. Committed to death of the innocent and the helpless. This is whom God has given us. This is God's judgment on us. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. Not just in heaven, not just a little bit ago, but forever. And he is using all the kingdoms and rulers of the earth to bring all people under his rule. Every last tongue and tribe and nation is under him and will bow the knee. And there's two ways we can bow the knee. We can bow the knee the way that Israel is about to bow the knee crushed under the hand of the Lord through Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the book, right? Or we can bow the knee and be the remnant instead of bowing to Baal and being crushed by the Lord's hand. We can be the remnant who have never kissed the idol. But our knee has always been bowed before the Lord. Now, which do you want to be? It's a simple choice. Do you want to be the woman who's saved? Whose son is saved and then they're saved? Or do you want to be the ones that run to the temple? We're going to get there soon. The temple of Baal. Everybody dies. Those are the, it's, it's real simple. You say, yeah, but I might die if I worship the Lord. Yes, all the prophets, that's what, that's what Elijah was pointing out to the Lord, right? The faithful people are all dying. Yeah. But your choice is still very simple. Will you fear man or will you fear God? Because God will bring you through death to everlasting life if you are one of the remnant. 
He'll bring you safely into his kingdom of light. And what more could you ask for in the end? You're going to die anyway. And after that comes the judgment. And at the end, we will see Jesus sitting on the right hand of God the Father, judging. And it's a terrible, horrible judgment that you can't help but along with Elisha, crying as you think of what it means. And at the same moment, you'll see him giving mercy to his people. What a glorious, glorious picture. And we see a little bit of it right here. We just see this little picture in these two passages of the mercy of the Lord and his judgment at the same moment. So what is the relationship between these two passages? It's the relationship between God's wrath and his mercy. And they're not at all in contradiction to one another. They go together perfectly. I will judge those who reject me. I will show mercy on those who obey me. I will judge those who turn away from my covenant. I will show mercy on those who repent. Sometimes we hear that and we think, yeah, that's good. That's nice. That's nice, Pastor. Thanks for telling us. And we go on with our day. By the time lunch rolls around, we're more concerned about soccer than whether God's judgment or his mercy are on us. Sometimes we hear this warning. And this is a warning. You're going to be one or the other. You're going, either going to be in the 7,000 or you're going to be in all the rest. With God's wrath being poured out. And the physical death that's described here is nothing compared to the spiritual eternal death of hell. And so sometimes we hear this warning, we hear God's warning. And then we push our luck. We think God's not in control, that's why, that's why we call it pushing our luck, right? We push our luck, and then we give ourselves back to sin once again. And we think, well, I'll repent later, I'll repent eventually. And repentance gets further and further from our minds as we go further and further into sin. And the longer we go with nothing happening or with only receiving light discipline from the Lord, the more confident and complacent we grow in our disobedience. Have you ever experienced that? Thinking, eh, 
I sinned last week and it didn't really do anything. It didn't really seem to matter. Pretty sure I can do it again this week and next week and the week after and the week after. And then God's judgment comes. And it's too late. Hazael is king of Aram. Jehu is king in Israel. Elisha is the prophet. And God's judgment is fulfilled. God is gracious. But his promised judgment is coming. Do not leave repentance until it's too late. But more than that, I want all of you who have repented, I want you to see this and to know that this is the comfort of the Lord to you. My judgment is coming. The blood of the innocent in Christ will be avenged. Praise the Lord. Justice will roll down over lust like fountains. Second Peter 3.9 we read, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The return of Christ is coming. But God is showing his mercy and patience right now. Having Joe Biden as our president is just a, a little flick on the ear. Remember, I'm coming. A tiny, tiny little discipline. Remember, I'm coming. This ought to be encouraging to us to know that eventually this time of patience will end. And God will finally pour out his wrath on the wicked. And some will be delivered. And some will be destroyed. Will you repent and rejoice that you are among his people? Sinners, yes, saved by grace. So when his wrath is poured out, we can live in his kingdom for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do deliver those who have put their faith in you. Father, may our fear be of you and not of those who can only destroy the body. And Father, do send your Son again quickly. We look forward to his coming because we are yours. 
in spite of the fact that we know that when he comes, he will judge the living and the dead, in spite of the fact that we know our own sins deserve your wrath being poured out, we say, come Lord Jesus, because we are in him. We have died to our sin. We have been raised up in newness of life. We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. So Father, show your great mercy to us. Cause our hearts to be devoted more and more to you. And help us to wait with patience the coming day of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.